Welcome friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to global news and social artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we get to talk with someone that's building a more humane world from the inside out. And today, uh, on short notice, and I, I really appreciate the agreement to do this, uh, is Stephen Graves uh, from over at Mizzou, Black Studies. Uh, you're the uh, assistant professor, but director of uh, undergraduate studies. Is that the way it goes? Yes, sir. We met recently on another show where we were getting ready for a virtual visit by uh, Andrew Young. Is that right? Yeah, the, the MLK celebration, we had Andrew Young that day, yeah. Oh, the MLK celebration, right. Yeah. How did that feel to you? For those uh, listeners that don't know, uh, Andrew Young came in virtually, had a wonderful hour or so, answered questions, and more mm -hmm. stuff rolled out when the questions got asked and answered. I thought it was great. Uh, how did it go from your side? No, I, I thought it was uh, went very well as well. Uh, I thought he was very informative. I think for people who were unaware of his role in the civil rights movement and what he's done uh, politically, uh, post-civil rights movement, that he had a lot of uh, important information and, and definitely a lot of wisdom to share, for sure. I think that one of the things that was glaring, <clears throat> given his conversation and then the post Q&A with students, I think is still this kind of uh, generational divide, uh, a generational divide between younger and older Blacks, but also I think between younger and older Democrats. So I think that um, there were definitely some moments and some topics, some questions that came up that I definitely think kind of highlighted um, the heightened glaring differences between older and younger activists. I think some of the tactics, some of the ideas, some of the strategies and some of the feelings that was expressed uh, by Andrew Young and continues to be expressed by some older Democrats and some older members of the Black community that younger generation just see differently and want to move and do things a little bit differently. And I think that is probably one of the things that came up in the post discussions and probably one of the um, few issues that kind of came up from the discussion. So let me uh, follow up with that. Uh, yeah. Andrew Young, from his uh, days as an activist uh, in the news, was a nonviolent uh, partner with Martin Luther King and right. uh, still believes that uh, nonviolence is the way to go. He commended uh, Jonathan Butler and is in his mm -hmm. hunger strike at the uh, 2015 uprising, we call it. How, since you're a younger generation, are, are you saying <laughs> that you have a different take on how things need to be done these days? I would say that uh, one thing that I would I would mention though about even his role on the civil rights movement is you know one in the early stages of that civil rights movement you know groups like SNCC and CORE and some of the more younger college educated African Americans part of that movement um, had different suggestions and different ideas as kind of time went on and they went on to found you know the Black Panther Party and the Black Power movement and some of those things uh, with their growing frustration with the civil rights movement and the pace of that. So we have seen this kind of happen before historically, uh, that the younger generation uh, kind of gets fed up with the pace <clears throat> and some of the strategies of the older generation and kind of break off and, and kind of do their own thing. Another thing that I would highlight too is that 
know, the success of the civil rights movement as although it's kind of um, promoted as a nonviolent movement and the success of that movement <clears throat> mainly being the nonviolent part of it, the more aggressive radical part of the civil rights movement played a, a huge role. And some would argue um, that the success of the civil rights movement really impinges on both, that, that, the, that white America in particular was much more willing to negotiate the terms of civil rights <clears throat> with the peaceful nonviolent approach rather than the kind of more radical, some would argue violent approach uh, of the black power movement and everything else it is. So you don't really get the success of civil rights. You don't really get progress without at least the threat or at least the kind of uh, ability for violence to be an option and everything else it is. I mean, the civil rights movement really is successful and, and I would argue this because of at least the visuals of, of violence. People have been beaten and hanging and hosed and, and bitten by dogs for generations prior to the civil rights movement. It wasn't until television in the 50s and 60s became in almost in every single household, even in black and white, but that America really got to see exactly what was happening to black people. Like prior, prior to then, right, like you read about hangings and, and court cases and beatings and arrests, you know, mainly through the newspaper back in those days, right? So sometimes you had to wait a day uh, in some cases before you read what happened or heard what happened, or you just kind of read about it. And without the kind of visual, you couldn't really kind of see it. So it wasn't until people started to actually see violence against black people on television where they were like, oh, that's what they're doing to black people. I didn't know it looked like that. Like, I thought there was just an arrest. And we heard about a gathering, you know, arrest of 10 African-Americans. But I didn't know that they were getting beaten and hit and everything else. Is, and it kind of changed the mindset. So violence is a kind of necessary part of this movement and everything else is. So for it to really just be shunned and just neglected as a complete radical, ineffective approach, uh, I think is doing it a disservice. And that was one of the things that really kind of came out again with Andrew Young as he was kind of speaking about uh, his role in the civil rights movement while totally neglecting, um, you know, the parallel, you know, track for liberation and progress that's happening at the same time. And just to chalk them up as just, uh, you know, non-intellectual radicals who are, you know, violent and most of them are dead, I think is, is a complete disservice. And I think that Angela Davis and some of the others who are still, you know, fighting a good fight and Bobby Seale would, would uh, have some disagreements with that. So uh, I just think that it's important to, to highlight that uh, they both go. I mean, it's negotiating at the same time. Malcolm X is going at the same time as, as MLK, right? And so you're both these messages are being prom promulgated to the public at the same time. Well, one of them is a very aggressive message, right? And one of them is a more peaceful, turn the other cheek, nonviolent kind of happy message. Well, for crying out loud, I mean, which one do you think people are going to adopt and feel more comfortable accepting? You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, rather than the threat of violence, we'll gladly take door B, which is much more friendly and, and, and much more open. Uh, we'll gladly accept that one because the other option, they're angry and, or, and have some issues and stuff going on here. Um, so it's important to highlight. And I think that what we're seeing with some of these younger generations is that they're still, they're angry. Um, and they have some of the same attributes that we saw in the 50s and 60s with college educated blacks uh, after Brown v. Board. Younger generation, man, they're tired. They don't want to keep hearing that, oh, just keep waiting and playing the game and it takes time and it's a marathon out of sprint. Well, you've been saying that now for 60, 70 years and they continue to have seen their parents struggle and they've grown up poor and disenfranchised and all this adversity. At what moment in time for young people are, is, is there going to be some progress or success that they can get behind and people will quit just telling them, oh, you just got to keep plugging away and small steps here and small steps there. Well, they're tired of hearing that at some point. So that puts a lot of responsibility on uh, a black studies department <laughs> that is uh, 50 years old and is now supposedly 
I mean, your your statement is that you're educating people to uh, identify problems, uh, find solutions to those problems, uh, uh, create a better world, uh, adapt uh, as you can. Uh, that's that, that's hard work. How, how, are, yeah. how are you doing that? Very carefully. <laughs> Very carefully, because you're right. It is difficult, right? Because we're trying to educate and, and prepare, you know, our students for the future, right? And we're also trying to offer them tools and suggestions and ideas, historical and theoretical, right? To kind of face the problems that, uh, you know, and address the problems that they're facing and everything else it is. And so, uh, you know, the political climate, uh, the social climate, cancel culture, all these things that are kind of taking place at the same time right now, while there's still injustice and racial injustice and inequalities, and we're trying to kind of you know, navigate progress, right? And we're trying to um, propose and navigate ideas for younger generations. It gets difficult for sure. I mean, it, you know, we have to be able to at least you know, discuss and throw all options on the table. And that can be very problematic and it can be difficult for sure to say the least. Mm-hmm. At Mizzou, predominantly a white university. We have our own issues. I mean, I'm a, a graduate of Mizzou, I've got three degrees there, my goodness. You know, I, my alma mater in, in many ways, uh, although I also had a degree from Southern Methodist. So some would say Mizzou hasn't changed very much. How are you seeing Mizzou and are we changing? Uh, are we uh, creating a, a much more equitable playing field. Uh, how, how, how's it looking? You know, I, I think that Mizzou is very symbolic of the kind of track and, and movements of society and America overall. It is trying to address its, its inequalities and, and racial disparities for sure. Is it willing, like most places, to address them head on? to devote the resources and attention that is required and necessary? No, but I think that that is political and it's very strategic uh, because the state of Missouri overall is a, is a pretty red state. I mean, outside of the 70, Columbia, Kansas City, St. Louis, it gets pretty rural and pretty red pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And it's a public land grant university and one that's kind of um, dependent upon the legislature and dependent on voters. Uh, I think that, you know, Missouri is doing a pretty good job and they're really trying to kind of navigate state politics and in the meantime of trying to address kind of racial disparity needs. And sometimes, and a lot of times, those kind of come in clash and those are going to be difficult to reverse because there's still, you know, obviously glaring racism, institutional racism and everything else it is, but um, there is also a political climate that is somewhat hostile to things like critical race theory and to black studies and to ethnic studies and and all these other kind of things. So I, I give Missouri credit for at least trying to, uh, for addressing or attempting and putting a plan in place to address its needs. But I think in like in most cases, what is really required and necessary to substantially make those changes, I don't think that most places and most institutions, not just Mizzou are really willing to take. Leadership is a, a big need, it seems. What are your avenues for building leaders on campus and in the uh, Columbia community? Because uh, some would say it needs to be in both places and and Black Studies shouldn't just be in the ivory tower over here. It it needs to be on the streets as well. 
No, I definitely agree that part of Black Studies and its missions and goals is to be in the community and to be a community advocate and a community builder as well. Uh, I think that that is a very important part of our mission and a very important part of what <clears throat> the goal of Black Studies should be. Um, and I think that here in Columbia, particularly, um, where there is a, a population here that is definitely in need of being reached out to and being involved in the campus community, um, I'm, so, I'm always surprised about how uh, the very few students from Columbia are actually at Mizzou. <clears throat> a lot of my students come from other places, Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, and I'm sorry. <clears throat> There's very few locals here. And so that's something that I definitely think that needs to be addressed. Leadership, absolutely very important. But it's a tough one to navigate these days, my friend, I must say, because what's required of leadership, and I think that the you know, the kind of character and elements of leadership have really kind of changed over time. I mean, again, if you think about it, just from our previous discussion, our previous, you know, conversation about the, the civil rights movement, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people like Martin Luther King, Andrew Young, Rosas, they're sacrificing a lot. I mean, they're going to jail. They are in the streets. They are taking the beatings and the hoses along with the, you know, the masses who are protesting and, and uh, participating in activism at the same time. Uh, that's sacrifice, you know, and servant leadership is the real big thing. Um, so how can we cultivate individuals who are willing to make that kind of sacrifice in this day and age of social media and Instagram likes and all the other socialization aspects that really, you know, divert all the attention away from uh, a person's willingness to take a hit and to be disliked, to be, to be mocked, to be ridiculed, uh, you know, all that I think is what's required of, of successful leaders, but that is a hard and very difficult element to kind of coach and to teach and to kind of build up in others. I'm not saying that you either you have it or you don't, uh, but someone has to be the example. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I think one of the things that we that is important at before we talk about leadership at Mizzou, and that also that really kind of makes it difficult, is because for someone in the academics or academia to make that sacrifice, um, it can cost them their career, their profession, right? Especially sure. if they're non-tenured, right? So right. a lot of so a lot of Mizzou faculty who would be willing to make those kind of attempts and to go out on that limb, uh, they don't have tenure or they're looking to get tenured, right? So they're not really protected in case it doesn't go well, they don't get tenured and then they're out. Right. Um, and so they spend so much time in academia and in books and in writing and else is that the kind of community involvement takes a, takes a back seat or sometimes it's in the trunk uh, <laughs> because their main pri you know, priority is to get tenure, right? They need to have a job and everything else it is. And sometimes by the time that happens, you know, that the community has evolved or has changed so much that now they have other interests and things that are in mind. And so getting back to the community is one thing. Um, so I think that, so academics and academia is a hard place to really find that leader that who is untenured, especially because there's a lot of sacrifice that needs to be um, take place. Mm -hmm. Now it does, again, it does happen. And, and I do think that there's potential there within the Mizzou community for that to, to kind of arise. Um, but it, it it takes it's going to take an example. Someone's going to have to set an example. Oh, and more than probably most likely, be the example. Someone is going to have to be. I hate this, you know, for like the sacrificial lamb, really, to kind of take one on the chin to really highlight and to really kind of bring a kind of imagery to the kind of you know, to the plight and really to the issue. Um, and you know, it's, it's very like Colin Kaepernick, you know, kind of a representation, right? Someone's going to have to lose their job or at least kind of be the the symbol of the movement really to kind of, and take that hit. And some people are gonna have to see that sacrifice in order for it to really kind of work. 
but man, it's difficult in this culture. <clears throat> I think you know popularity and likes and reads and shares and stuff. It's so hypnotizing, especially amongst young generation and everything else it is. And so again, this idea of, you know, in order to truly lead, you know, I have to make sacrifices and suffer a little bit and be mocked and ridiculed and be willing to be laughed at. Woo-wee, it's a, just a tough one, my friend. So there are various ways to be leaders. Uh, you can be a playwright and be a leader. You can be a singer songwriter. You can be uh, on the city council. A lot of acceptable ways to be leaders and get your message out and then get a following and and have a voice. So what I'm hearing from you is that there are certain leaders though <laughs> that that may have to do other things than those kinds of careers that would be much more of a uh, lightning rod uh, kind of leader. What kind of work are you imagining uh, a leader to be that would bring such sacrifice? What would they be doing that would bring that kind of heat to them? I will give the example of the last or the past NBA season with the, with the in the bubble, and they had this whole big discussion after George Floyd and uh, about should we play or should we not play, and they decided to go with the jerseys and the symbolic gest and names on the back to kind of be their movement. And everything else is like that, right? Uh, what we're looking for, and what I am particularly highlighting in this case when I talk about leadership and what it looks like is for after that NBA season or after even after those teams started to get eliminated, all of those players who wanted to be social justice warriors and make statements, where were they when the season ended? Those protests and riots and stuff were still going on at the same time the season ended. So previous my previous statement about Martin and Malcolm, and they're actually in the streets with the masses. As soon as that NBA season was over or as soon as those teams are, and certain players were eliminated, they should have been in, in Wisconsin. They should have been in Portland. They should have been in Louisville, Kentucky, and everything else. Out on the streets with the people. Your biggest platform, I'm sorry, is not playing NBA games with jerseys. Look at the NBA statistic and viewership, right? It's like 77% African-American. And the other... And the other 30% is usually among progressive white Democrats who already have a feeling of taste for basketball. There's a small percentage of them really who are just fans of their local team and they really don't have any valued interest in the sport of basketball. And most of the things that they kept saying was that they were going to use their post-game you know, interviews really to kind of hearken upon you know, social injustice. Well, how many people stick around for the post-game interviews in the, in the press conference after the game is over with, especially if they're not even televised? So, you know, so your message is really not getting out. The best way for your message to really get out and to demonstrate and show your, your leadership abilities and, and show your commitment to the thing was for after that season to be over with, to gather your stuff and get your butt out there in the streets with the masses, the people who are actually protesting, right? Go out there and get arrested. Go out there and get and get sprayed. Go out there and get hosed down like and everything else it is. Go out there and, and then people will say, and then the, the idea of, your stage and your platform goes exponentially. Can you, right? Just imagine if LeBron James shows up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, or else is in the protest and gets arrested for whatever nonsense, or else it is. Just, even just standing there in the protest and gets arrested, or else it is. The news, or else it is, is much different. The, I, the, the news that LeBron James gets arrested in a protest goes much further than LeBron James's comments after a game versus the Phoenix Suns, or else it is. Because who's gonna see that interview? Not many. Who's gonna see the news about LeBron James being arrested? 
everybody. And then the conversation can start from what do you get arrested for? What's his statement? He comes out and afterwards I make a press conference and does a press release and, and highlights these issues. Demonstra again, make that be willing to make that sacrifice and everything else. And that can come from any profession, or else it is. It could be, a, like you said, a dancer, an artist, a musician, a newspaper columnist, a teacher, a nonprofit, or it could be of anything. But the action is what's going to demonstrate everything else it is. Just spouting out good things from Twitter and from Instagram and everything else it is is fine. But that is not going to break. That's not going to do it. That's not going to demonstrate that you're actually willing to make a sacrifice because you're really just making statements behind the protection of your house or your or phone. Get your butt out in the public where you can be seen. Get out there with the poor and distraught and disenfranchised and walk the streets with them. Go out there and protest alongside them. And then they will see that you're actually for them. But making tweets and Instagram posts about social justice that doesn't do us much i'm hearing more people say i'm done with protesting because it doesn't seem to be effective in making change how are you hearing those voices that or do you do you hear that message i do and i think that it's it's symbolic of the failures of american democracy that the ability to make change, substantive change in this country by design, and especially for minorities and, ethnic and, and other disenfranchised groups is difficult to damn near impossible. Uh, and again, by design, by the founding fathers using the constitution and everything else with it, um, that they then, and purposely done for changes to be much more difficult. But back to our, our previous conversation about young old generations, we need, they want changes quicker than what our democracy will allow. And people were saying that, you know, they're getting sick of the protests. Yes, because it's not bringing back any results yet. It hasn't brought any tangible results at all. And we'll see what happens with the uh, with the Chauvin case and what happened with George Floyd's murderer with the police up there. If that brings, uh, you know, a conviction and everything else it is. Same with the, uh, with Breonna Taylor's case and things going on there. But we haven't seen any results. We haven't seen any victories yet from protest. Uh, but we haven't seen any victories come yet politically either. To be perfectly honest, we haven't seen any victories at all. So I'm so of course there's frustration on both sides. Young Democrats are already upset and 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 feeling uh, frustrated with Biden, and he's only been in there for what sixty days, fifty something days, and they're already frustrated with him already. Um, they're frustrated with the protests because they're not seeing the results and, and everything else it is. Um, so there's frustration on on all the avenues that are currently being used uh, to gain progress or liberation for ethnic minorities. All of them are frustrated because none of them are getting anywhere. Um, and why they're not getting anywhere is, you know, is, is part of the problem and everything else it is. And it kind of gets back to our previous conversation and discussion is about the strategies and tactics. And I will use the Occupy Wall Street movement as an example, because that was a big one that had all racial ethnic groups and everything else. This is a class issue, right? The 99% versus the one. And they're all down in, 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 Madison, in Madison Square and in the parks and everything else it is, right? passing out megaphones and talking about economic inequalities and everything else it is. Well, unfortunately, unless there's an actual action and tax those things, not just discussions and passing around megaphones, this is a free country. We have the right to assembly. They'll let anybody go out there and talk all day. Hey, sure. I mean, the what, KKK is still allowed to hold rallies and people protest and sitting around getting yourself a permit. Anybody can go out there and talk and everything else it is. That's which is all fine and dandy. And it's going to sound real, real Marxist. I know how you know, crazy stuff this sounds. But the funny thing about it is, is that no point during that whole Occupy Wall Street, all of those people down there, and they're right there in front of Goldman Sachs and the Apple Store and the 
from the Microsoft store and Louis Vuitton around what they are facing, which they say is their oppressor, right? Capitalism and economic inequality. And they're down there in New York in the face of all these things, passing around megaphones about economic inequality and how unfair it is and how injustice it is. And now that one, in that one moment in time, did not anybody in that crowd think to themselves, why don't we, let's just destroy the, why don't we, why aren't we destroying this stuff? Let's destroy the means of production. Like we're facing our oppressor and we have, I mean, the, let the proletarian revolution take place. If there is any an opportunity for a workers' proletarian revolution to take place, there's the moment. You're all right there, and you're right, and they're facing your capitalist pressure. And not and not nobody thinks of themselves to destroy the means of production or to act, to take it by action. Well, at that point, it just dissipates movement over economic inequality, still is as it is, growing exponentially. Ninety nine percent is still there, one percent still there, and going opposites. A, a, a movement for of absolute nothing, no progress, no victories, nothing to hang your hat on. What is the big significant outcome of the Occupy Wall Street movement? Nothing. Why? Because there was no action to back up any of the revolutionary claims that they were taking. And why are people so inactive and afraid of making that, again, sacrifice and be willing to make that suffer, to make that kind of change? It was not even in their psyche. It, it didn't even enter uh, you know, they're in their bag of tricks that perhaps we should we should take action and to destroying our oppressors and the and the tools of our oppression. It wasn't even in there. It didn't even come up. And that's the thing. I mean, that's like Batman having a whole tool belt there. And the one tool that he needs to, to liberate himself or catch the Joker, he doesn't want to use it. He's like, ah, you don't want to touch that. One. This is where we're at. Why isn't even a consideration? So we had uh, some people that felt as though change wasn't happening fast enough on January the 6th. Mm -hmm. And uh, they took it upon themselves to make that change happen. And there weren't very many black faces in that crowd. <laughs> so we're seeing that there are folks that are feeling disenfranchised on the white side, on the black side, mm -hmm. on every you know, anybody that is <laughs> that is somewhere part of the 99% in right. some way is not happy. Right. So they're unhappy it, for different reasons. Yeah, uh, right, right. <laughs> but they would be happy to fight against another group <laughs> if they thought that other group was uh, challenging their right to do what they want to do. And, and what I'm getting at is, mm -hmm. are we being pitted against each other by the 1% so that we will just eventually just kill each other off enough that the 1% will even have more control? Absolutely. Yes, both sides are, are, are angry and frustrated and feeling disenfranchised. But those on January 6th of mostly white patrons who stormed the Capitol, they're disenfranchised because they think that change in this country is happening too fast. It's getting too diverse and it's getting, and it's getting uh, I mean, too much uh, power to ethnic minorities and to women and to democracy and, and everything else it is. They feel like it's going too fast. And the other side feel like it's not moving fast enough. But And both, yes, are, are being manipulated and are being played with by the 1% and by elites. Poor whites in the South, those, those 
people who continually vote against their best interests. Some of the worst schools, some of the worst access to healthcare, some of the worst resources devoted to those places. And they continually vote against their best interests on every occasion. And it's mind boggling, right? And so the idea that both sides are upset and they're being paid against each other is, is absolutely true. Working class people, poor people on both sides, absolutely being told uh, that the other that the problem is that are the working class people when it's not. This is the working class person who gets upset at the Walmart trying to get ten dollars an hour. The Walmart employee is not your problem. Okay, let me just tell you that right now. I'm sorry, but the person at McDonald's trying to get ten bucks an hour is not your problem. If you're worried about Walmart making ten dollars an hour, then we've then boy, we've got bigger issues at hand. But this is the reinforcement that they're continually told, and this happens to unfortunately, this has happened to poor whites all the time. And when it comes, especially when it comes down to political resources, right? So they're told that the free Negro is the problem and that you don't want to have to compete for labor and workforce with the free Negro. Now, the Hispanic is the problem. You don't want to compete for cheap labor force and stuff with the Hispanic, right? The, the border and now immigration and everything else it is. That there's always an us first them and, the, and the, the problems and the issues of white America are always being pitted against another outside ethnic group and not never once do they look internally and say, what are we doing in, in our communities with our vote and with our politics that is not bring results. It cannot be that the Negro and that the Hispanic and that the Asian immigrant is the problem for white for all of white America's problems. It's the same way that I can tell African-Americans if you tell black people that government and that white America cannot be the, cannot be the root of all of our problems. And yet this is the dichotomy for what we're seeing. Both groups aiming at each other instead of aiming at their oppressor. And, and the oppressor uses media and they use marketing and they use all kinds of tactics for us to do so. They're very smart. It's the, and they're very smart and they take advantage of and exploit working class people all the time. In my class, I use the example of the of the kid who of the uh, kid who works at Foot Locker, right? Especially during like new shoe season. Okay. So I so he's making like seven dollars an hour. And he works a six hour shift, you know, on Black Friday at Foot Locker selling the new Jordan 28 or whatever it's on, right? Those shoes, people line up 200, 250 bucks a pop for a shoe, right? These shoes are made for about 50 bucks, right? And so the profit is about 250 bucks for Nike and whoever else it is. This kid's making seven bucks an hour. He works a six hour shift, right? Seven times six is about 42 bucks, okay? So that kid for his six hours makes about 40 bucks, <laughs> right? He sells eight or 10 pairs of shoes at two or 200 bucks a pop. He has made Foot Locker and Nike 2,500 bucks. He's made 40. Now at some point that kid should go, Wait a minute here. I, this is ridiculous. I just made Foot Locker and Nike 3,000 bucks. I'm taking home 40 bucks today and I'm working my butt off. People are lining up and they're rude and get this size, get that size and everything else. This. My goodness, this is insane. He's right. At some point, this should go off. But instead, he gets off work and he goes home and he sees all his friends and everything else have the new iPhone and these shoes. Or then a commercial comes on about the new earbuds and or an ad comes up and it's BOGO. Buy one, get one. He's like, oh my, well, I got to have that, right? I got to get that. Well, how do I get it? I guess I'm going back to work tomorrow, and <laughs> right? And this is like, no, 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 no. Like, this is the problem of working class people and everything else is right. That society, and like you said, those elite, that one percent, they have created the mechanisms of control for which working class people completely get disillusioned with progress and their prosperity. These stimulus checks being another one. It's just, it's just. You know, I get people are in need and everything else it is, but you put tax season and stimulus check with cheap air flights, and what have we seen? People just traveling and spending their money, giving it back to the 1%. <laughs> this, this, 
The government gives us our money back. We turn around and give it right back to the 1%, buying cheap airline tickets, going to Vegas, going to Miami, and everything else is to have extra money or else it is, and giving it right back to them rather, rather than investing in ourselves and improving our lives. And so this, so that pitting of, of poor people, a class issue, absolutely. But there is still, even within that class issue, there is still a race issue. Because still, even because this ability to work alongside each other and overcome common enemy is partly um, a result of racism because there are even the poorest whites still feel like they are superior or have a higher stake than, than blacks, regardless of their class. So how do we get those people to feel like to be willing to you know work alongside us and everything else is when they still have this race issue that's no matter how poor or how uneducated or unwealthy they are, they feel like they still have more at stake, more say in a and much more power and influence than even the the richest or wealthiest or educated African American. And so so that, but again, I think that also is part of the issue of the elite and how they continue to just manipulate voters. So at Mizzou, uh, and I'm sure I could ask this of any school and, and maybe you've reached out to others to see what's going on. Is there a think tank that is examining this cauldron of issues and uh, looking for solutions? Is there a, a group of people that are willing to sit and talk and discuss and share ideas and uh, with the goal in mind of coming up with solutions? There are, but they all have different roads and avenues for which they believe that solutions can be granted. And the sacrifices and the strategies that they're willing to employ to make those successful those strategies successful. I mean, for example, for example, I mean, Candace Owens, it, you know, sits down and has many conversations about the plight of African Americans in this country and what needs to be done for racially, you know, injustice and equality and everything else. This and her strategy was a Brexit, you know, for Black people to abandon the Democratic Party and join the Republican Party, and, and that was her strategy for for progress and everything else. It is right. Well, you got people out there like uh, you know. Um, and Killer Mike and others who are saying, no, the strategy is to bank, you know, uh, bank black, right? And to, you know, join back on businesses and, and don't put your money in black banks and else's. And that's the strategy. And let's have more discussions about investing in Black Girls Rock and, and, and these other racial institutions are also there to, to liberate ourselves or to kind of get progress. And, and so there's, there's all kinds of conversations that are taking place and the various groups that are having these issues. Some are, some are just looking at the problem and some are really trying to look at solutions but there's no coordinated, unified effort to kind of have these discussions, right? right. So there's just 10 separate groups all there have, and, and they're not talking to each other. There's competition amongst the groups in this kind of field to be the number one group making all the, you know, the ideas and discussions and, and everything else it is and personal issues that kind of take place. Um, and so unless we can coordinate and unify these efforts, mm -hmm. then we're going to just continue to see the same you know, complacency and inability to kind of strike progress. What really needs to be happen, what really needs to happen is that those groups and those individuals who are willing to have these discussions and those solutions, right? They need to coordinate not all 50 of black people's problems and issues. Can we come to an agreement on five to 10? Mm -hmm. And we don't even need hundred percent. Can we get 90%? And there, are, and there are issues out there that you can get 90 to 95% of black people who can come to an agreement on it. You know, or say, do we need better healthcare, right? Is there, is there a criminal justice problem or something like that, right? So let's just find the five to 10 issues, however many there are, and let's just coordinate 100% on those things. And let's get those things accomplished and unified. We, right. can, we can get back to the, you know, our differences and the discrepancies and tactics on the other 25 things down the road. 
but let's get the five things that we all agree on that we need right now. Let's get those things now. And, the, and, and we'll work towards other things down the road later. Um, but there hasn't been a willingness to do so. Um, again, for a plethora of reasons, again, competition and, and different you know, need for strategy. And again, young, old dynamic, educated versus uneducated dynamic. Um, but that you know, is, is really the strategy for which unity and mobilization and a coordination on, on the field, on the has however many ideas that we can agree on. And let's just start there and get a victory, right? Sometimes you like in sports, sometimes, sometimes you just need to win one. Right, just to get the ball rolling, and it's just you know, sometimes you haven't you missed a bunch of shots, you know, you're in a little slump. You just need to hit, see the ball go in the hoop. Sometimes I just need to just just get one, and then let's kind of you know we can kind of get the momentum going. That's where we are. We need to get a victory, and th and then let's see what happens. So I'm I'm speaking with uh, Stephen Graves, assistant professor over at Mizzou in the Black Studies Department. There are about three prongs I still want to uh, go with uh, on talking with you and, and finding yeah. out your, your take. One of the prongs is you didn't grow up in Columbia. Where are you from? I'm from Portland. <laughs> I'm from Portland, Oregon. Oh, okay. That's where my daughter lives now. Okay. That's right. All yeah, right. Okay. All right. Yeah. So uh, a product of uh, Portland subculture. Uh, were you in a, a subculture group there? I don't know Portland uh, well. I mean, I went to a predominantly white high school till I was 18. Then I moved away and went to college in Seattle. Um, but I was definitely, you know, involved in my, in my time being around there um, with the African-American community in there and East Multnomah County and the and other disenfranchised groups and stuff going on there. I'm still on the loop, obviously, with the protests and things going on there. I still have some active involvement there in the city. Keep a sharp eye on it and everything else it is. Um, and so it, it definitely helps and inform, you know, a lot of kind of what I see because, mm -hmm. and a lot of what I do politically and in the classroom as well, because Portland, Oregon's a lot like Missouri because, <laughs> you know, the I-5 runs north and south right through the thing, right? And just like Missouri, you know, on that five, Portland, Salem, Eugene, pretty diverse and pretty progressive. <clears throat> Outside of that, it gets read pretty darn quickly, right? It sounds, wow. sounds very eerily similar to Missouri. Mm -hmm. uh, so even the, out, so out, the outskirts of Portland uh, can get real, you know, real, real fast and can get real red real fast. But people have the inclination that Portland is all of Oregon and that there's just this one big progressive melting pot going on, you know, in, in that in that area when it's just not the case at all. It is still one of the most racist towns, most segregated towns and uh, has the high percentage of gentrification going on in Portland right now. There are all kinds of racial injustice and inequalities going on in Portland right now. But it has this perception of just as being this progressive hippie town. I Part of me blames Portlandia, that TV show that was on a long time ago. I think it just gave all these people this, this weird progressive vibe about Portland with voodoo donuts and how strange it was. But it still has some of the same issues and stuff that we see here and in other places is that, you know, there is a huge dichotomy. There's a large chunk of the state of Oregon that, that has tried to get signatures to break off and join part of Idaho to become Jefferson State and everything else it is. So there's a lot of turmoil and stuff that happens there. And so, again, when I think about myself and, I, and where I, I, I fall politically and the kind of you know, activism and the kind of you know, theoretical and philosophies that I kind of propose, a lot of it does come from my hometown as far as a, a lot of these Democrats and progressives claim to be so racially inclusive and everything else it is, but gentrification so much racial injustice and equality and everything else it is still in the city of Portland that claims to be and has this perception of being so progressive. Man, if they can't solve it in Portland, I don't think a place can. All right. Well, to follow up on that, 
to to be a a tenured professor at Mizzou, somebody tells me that you've got to publish or or perish. Are, are you uh, preparing <laughs> to publish, or have you published? <laughs> I have published before I got here. I have, I have a book that's actually about black leadership. So it's funny that we've been talking about this. It's about the crisis of black leadership that kind of really gets into post-civil rights leadership in the black community since 1970 on and about the crisis of it and the lack thereof. And the name and the of your book? For having some. That's the and book the that I have. It's called, it's a book called crisis, The Crisis of Leadership. Okay. Uh, so it's a book available on Amazon and everything else it is. But yes, I am certainly preparing myself to publish uh, I'm working on an article right now that I am revising uh, to resubmit about uh, Du Bois and Nietzsche and elitism and American democracy and elitism democracy that really kind of speaks to you know the problems of American democracy and the uh, uh, political sophistication that's currently held plaguing this country. Is it kind of being a problem that we're having? So I got a great article that I'm working on that uh, right now. And then um, on the same kind of token we talked about before, uh, I'm working on a book right now that's about the founding fathers. It's called the uh, the birth of ignorance. And it really kind of talks about how the founding that the, how the founding founding fathers really set up and and are really to blame for our current problems in American democracy politically and everything else it is. What they did from the very beginning when it came to race in this country is really the reinforcing argument uh, behind a lot of the you know inaccuracies and the false politics that we're seeing right now and everything else it is. And so. I'm using a lot of the information and, and data that we've seen from the elections and the kind of rise in white nationalism in this country. And the, I talked about before about white voters in the South who continue to vote against their best interests and, and why. So, yes, I am I am a part of the thing is published or uh, published or perish. And that is very important. And I am preparing to do so, although part of me definitely does despise and um, doesn't have a really favorable viewpoint of that as being the, the, the kind of sole main criteria for tenureship. Uh, right. Because I think it's really about students and the transferring of education as being our jobs and main priority, but apparently they think differently than I do. <laughs> well, and, and they have for a long time. Yeah, right. Although I, I taught at Lincoln University for 30 years and never, uh -huh. pu never published a book. So uh, never published an article, but had a great run with a bunch of great students. And uh, right. Yep. It, so that was part of it was because I was part time. And never got into a tenure track situation. So yeah. it, it's a little different. But the next prong is going back to Malcolm X and then uh, MLK and, and uh, Andrew Young. Mm -hmm. They each spoke from a spiritual base. Mm -hmm. Do you hear today a spiritual base coming up through Black leadership? And no, and I think that's one of the biggest problems. Okay. No, and, and that's big. African Americans in this country are still socially conservative. I mean, they have some of the highest attendance in church, Bible study, tithing, and those kind of things. But reading Bible scriptures, like we are still socially conservative, highly in the African American community. So yes, there has not been very that that has not been one of the avenues of of the of the leadership for sure, um, and it's definitely one of the important parts that are missing. Because a lot of the things that are needed in the black community for sure are not really political in many in many aspects, right? Just value and love of self, taking, you know, being a good parent, raising good kids, reading to your kids at night, joining PTAs, you know, helping your kids with homework, all those kinds of things that kind of take place in your own cities. Those aren't really political issues. Those are kind of familial, you know, internal community issues that aren't on the ballot and everything else is for sure. And so some of the kind of 
the, the value and character base always needs to be sharpened, always needs to be kind of revamped and retooled. And it's just not really been an issue that's been talked about and been willing to be confronted in our modern leadership. So absolutely, the, the, it's, it's a really bad shame because that's part of the one of the things that we're seeing in society with, and with this. And one of my biggest fears about cancel, cancel culture is how do you call out society's failures? Right? How do you call out the shortcomings of individuals within your community without fear of being canceled or uh, without you know, the consequences that are going to come from internally? But, but a lot of times that's exactly what's needed. Like for, and again, for example, and I hate to use this, but just, just with the Grammys, and there's been a lot of writing back and forth about cancel culture and what they're doing with Aunt Jemima and Pepe Le Pew, and then the Grammy performance by Cardi B and the Megan Thee Stallion and the kind of explicit, overt kind of sexual provocativeness that takes place on the stage. One get, you know, Pepe Le Pew and somebody in Aunt Jemima gets canceled and, you know, the kind of sexual promiscuity. And I'm, I'm not a sex shamer by any stretch of the imagination. I just want to make that clear. What I'm talking about, the things that get promoted though, like the values and things that get promoted. And, you, and heaven forbid someone stand up and say, I don't think that kids should be watching that at the Grammys, or I just don't think that that's acceptable. And I don't think that young black people should be aspiring to be behaving in this kind of a way. Who is allowed to say that in this day and age? Mm -hmm. Who's allowed, or who is not only allowed to, but also willing to, that people will actually pay attention to, or else that has some stake, right? That has some say and some influence. Who is actually allowed to say that right now? Because it needs to be said, because this is an issue in the black community, especially, right? We still have the, a large percentage of single parent households and everything else in this. So the, the, the family structure and the moral character of, of the African-American community has got to be you know, brought back in and, and needs to be adjusted. But who can actually stake those claims and who can actually say those things right now? Nobody, because if you because if you've been catching it, else it is. You're a, you're a sex shamer, and uh, and you're all and cancel culture is coming for you and all these things. But who in the I mean, you know, who can see those two things and compare as far as you know what's you know the values of what we should be passing on to younger generations? And not trying to say don't look sexy and you shouldn't be ashamed of your body or anything else like that. But Lord have mercy, you know. It's got to be, there has to be a discussion that people are willing to take place. Not everything can be acceptable. And I think that's one of the hard things for this society to really to adjust to. We can't accept everything. Okay. Hit me. Uh, <laughs> Something's brewing, I can tell. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll go with my other prong uh, okay. and see where this goes. You had mentioned earlier that there haven't been any successes. And I, I want to go to Georgia and the whole movement to get uh, two senators elected. Are you viewing that effort as a success or is, do you put that in a different category than what you're saying and there's been no success of? I wouldn't qualify that as a success because if you have seen what Georgia is trying to do to restrict voting access since that election, mercy, oh mercy, some of the things that some of these other states are doing uh, that are Republican led um, so yes, I mean, what does Biden Democrats really have done with control of that Senate? <laughs> not much. Um, so I'm not willing to call that a success because success only comes with tangible outcomes and results. I apologize, but I'm much more results driven. I'm a results driven kind of guy. And, I, and that's how I kind of perceive actions when we talk about progress being made. 
And until there's some actual results, tangible results that come as a result of what happened in Georgia, it's definitely not a it's definitely not a success. Use those two seats in the power of the Senate to bring something to the table or bring a tangible legislation or a tangible policy or results to African Americans. Now we've got a success. Um, in the meantime, it's just uh, political purgatory, if you will. We're just kind of still kind of floating, floating along. And we're still kind of waiting to see uh, because Democrats haven't really done too much with that control of the Senate yet due to their, their willingness and pledge to work across the aisle and be bipartisan for many reasons I am not clearly understanding because the other side certainly is not willing to legislate that way, but for some reason, Democrats are. Um, so no, I'm not categorizing those victories uh, in Georgia as a, as a success. Uh, it's to be determined um, because there hasn't been any tangible wins yet to come out of it. So and in some cases, the backlash makes it even worse <laughs> because now what they're doing as far as voter suppression laws in some of these states, as a result of what happened, it's going to make it even harder in the future for African-Americans and other ethnic groups to kind of, you know, gain political power, power and access. So you, you use several times the word control of the Senate, yet mm -hmm. you're very aware that 50-50 with one decider <laughs> is not control of the Senate. It, they can only use their 51 vote for a very limited number of things. So... Um, are your expectations too high for the 50-50 split Senate? No, because, because Democrats uh, continually ran on this pledge and they talked so bad about Trump policies and what they were going to do differently and, and how bad they needed the control of the Senate and, and the control of the Senate and maintaining the House and getting, act and getting control of the three branches of government was going to be vital to moving this country forward and going to be vital to uh, dismantling Trump's harmful policies and everything else it is. And the fact they still can't get Democrats on board. Now, I do have a PhD in policy science, so, I'm, so I am still familiar, uh, familiar with how this works and everything else is. And I am familiar that there are a lot of Democrats who are elected in red states, and thus you're not going to get all unified 50 and everything else is for sure. So, I, And just like well, there are some Republicans in blue states who are sometimes on the fence and they have to kind of use their vote you know, wisely and everything else it is. Absolutely. But as but I previously stated, you did not see the Republicans when they ever had power utilize control like that. When you got control and the access of the, of the of Senate, the House and the president and the voters have spoken and given you access, then you should lead and legislate, lead and legislate and let the, the voters then have their say about how bad or well you're doing in two years from now. And for some reason, Democrats have refused to kind of do so. So it's not that I have unreal expectations. Uh, I just have practical, I believe I have what I have is practical expectations for sure. And so if all Democrats can't seem to figure out how to get on board all 50 and use, uh, you know, Kamal Harris, the vice president for 51 to get on board, then what you have promised your Democratic voters is um, not a whole lot. And what you're going to see is what we've been talking about before is more frustration in young people already and everything else is still got kids in cages, already bombing Syria. No, uh, gave up on the student loan cancellation already, gave up on the 2000 and they're going to give up on the $15 minimum wage. What then were we voting for? And, then, and what did you need the Senate so bad for? And what did you need control of maintaining the House so bad for when at least the foremost major thing that you have campaigned upon and told the people that we had to do and everything else it is haven't been done and aren't being done. And either through executive order or through the Congress and everything else it is. And so I have realistic, realistic expectations of government because 
Um, if government is meant to be, as people proclaim it and use it to be, the kind of main solution to our political problems, then I expect government to, to do its job. And when it doesn't do its job is when I have a problem. And I think that's kind of where we are. Okay. Uh, and again, we're looking for solutions. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're looking for unity. We're looking for... Uh... <laughs> See, that unity thing is really kind of is, is weird, right? Because the last four years, you never heard Republicans talking about unity. And we're walking across, and we need to work across the aisle. No, they had control of the House, they had control of the Senate, and they had control of the executive branch with Trump. And you know what they did? They legislated. We don't care. Drinking liberal tears, snowflakes, and making America great. We're going to legislate. That's what we're going to do. And we don't care about working across the aisle. But now, four years later, Democrats are in the same position, and their motto is we need to work across the aisle and be bipartisan. Why? That's not a requirement, and that's not what we'll ask for. We didn't vote for you to work across the aisle. People <laughs> voted for you to legislate and enact policy. So why is there this need or inclination for Democrats to feel like they have to work across the aisle when Republicans do not do so? They just lead and legislate. And that is how uh, we get so much frustration and confusion. And I think that's going to continue to happen in these prior elections and everything else is because in two years, Democrats are going to come back to us and say, we need more seats. Uh, we, you know, we just didn't have enough seats real season. We tried to do everything that you said. We tried to fulfill our our policy uh, legislation table, but we didn't have enough seats and so much deadlock. So if you vote again in mass numbers and get us a few more seats here and there, then we'll really be able to enact it. Give us a break. <laughs> again, the, how many times are you going to keep asking us to do the same thing over and over again? Just legislate and lead. If you're doing a good job in two, four, six years, people will, will vote in favor if you've done a good job. And if you haven't, then you'll get thrown out. But this per political purgatory that we're in, I think, is just unacceptable. So how do we do the grassroots uh, building of uh, making sure at every level there are more uh, people that are willing to make the social change? Because that's where it's at, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if, we're, if we're not changing in our own community, at our right. own campus, yeah. in our own county and, and so on. Yeah. We can't point fingers at Washington right. and say, you're not doing your job. Are we doing yeah. our job? Absolutely. If you're not out in the community doing, doing your part, uh, then it's, you're absolutely right. Pointing the finger is pointless. And it doesn't do any, it doesn't do any good anything else with it. So yes, there needs to be people who are actually in the grassroots community. The problem with the, the problem or what I would say is the, the one caveat to that is those people need to be funded and, and, and be given proper resource channels because usually to make the kind of change that's needed, you don't get the kind of funding and popularity and the kind of access really to kind of make the changes that are necessary. So usually those who are willing to do the work and those who have the ideas are usually the least funded and the least influential place and the influential places. So sometimes those people are out there doing twice as the work, twice as amount of work, out there feeding homeless and out there doing and, and out there sacrificing, and their little measly one hundred followers and their three likes and their two shares and everything else is just like mercy. How do we turn this around? And, and everything else is for sure. Um, so it, it just needs there just needs to be an, an opportunity and, and there needs to be access for more people to actually 
fund and provide resources to those who are willing to do the work. I get it. If you're too busy or you don't have the dull or interest or just socialist, it's not for you, but you still want to play a role, you still feel like it's important to contribute to, then yes, we need those for sure. Donate. Offer an internship, uh, you know, offer whatever resources that you have. We're not asking for every person that needs to be out in the street protesting and, and make an active movement. We're not, that's not what we're asking for. If you don't have it in you or, or you don't have opportunities or just through work or through class or through your position, you're not willing or you're not even just necessarily even able to, to be out in the streets and be giving like others are, then just donate or, or offer whatever resources that you do have. But again, it's usually those who are willing, willing to make that sacrifice and, and have good ideas and plans they're usually the least funded and, the, and have the least resources available to them. And the big corporations and big groups who, who do nice fancy things with little impact, you know, they get large grants and they get, you know, stipend, you know, stimulus from Walmarts and they have big corporate donors and stuff. And, and those just aren't available to usually small grassroots local people who are really trying to, you know, do some of the grassroots work down at the, you know, the, for the most disadvantaged, the most impressed. They're not getting Walmart grants or Target grants or big Nike Dick Sporting Goods grants to, to make social change. And so that is something that I think that is important to highlight because I tell you what, those people get burned out real quickly and they get frustrated too. I mean, here I am taking time out of my busy workday roasted you know, and getting off at five and getting the kids ready. And I'm still out serving, you know, cocoa or taking out blankets to the people on the cold day and all that. And after years of doing that and, and getting little to no involvement and I still can't get help from the community and I still can't get any resources. They're burnt out and they're done. Well, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do that on purpose. I'm telling you, it just totally happened that way. Well, Stephen, our our time is done. Uh, we're we're out of time. Oh, so wow. that was quick. <laughs> Man, that was, was fast. It was definitely quick. And, and so when I said, "Well, we're done," uh, I'm going to have to say, "Thank you, Stephen, for <laughs> for." Uh, Having the time today to share your uh, your passionate views about this ever increasing uh, problem, it seems uh, it's not getting less. So, uh, no, Dick, I appreciate you, and thank you for having me. I think you do a wonderful job and an excellent job of at least giving people the opportunity to have these conversations and to you know and express themselves and everything else. This which I think is valuable, important. And so I thank you for just giving me the opportunity to just to be here and then to talk with you, man. Anytime, whatever it is you got going, feel free, even on short notice, uh, because I think it's important. And I think that, the, and I, cause I think it's important for sure. And I think that there's a lot of value that can be had from just having these conversations and just going back and forth and just, and just, and have an open dialogue about it. So I thank you and I appreciate you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. And friends, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Uh, please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care, and talk to you soon. <laughs>